cliffcentral.com. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and cliffcentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg, and this is The Laws of Life on cliffcentral.com. Alongside me today, as usual, Lionel Makokotlela. Welcome, Lionel. Dumela Gary and Dumela to our listeners, and yeah, we're looking forward to the show. We really are. Right, today we have a three-part show. First up, we have attorney Nastasha Hardiff to explain how the law is starving the poor. Now, that sounds a bit absurd, but in effect, the law is forcing our major retailers and others to dump food and not give it to those that really need it. Mm. And the reason why, Lions, is because they fear being sued, which is tragic. Absolutely. I mean, I, our researcher, Benji Scheinberg, asked me, what happens if you give food to a beggar on the side of the road? You give him an apple and uh, he gets food poisoning. Can you sue him? Natasha's going to ask uh, that one. Uh, there's, there's an answer to that when we talk to her a little later. You have to be a distributor or retailer, and there's got to be, there's also got to be something else Natasha will tell you. Just don't let the bigger get your number plate. Otherwise, uh, don't give him your business card when you give him your apple. Anyway, we make light of something. Natasha is campaigning for surplus food distrib- distribution laws to be amended. So we'll talk to her in detail about how she's going about that. Second up, Uh, Later on, we're going to be talking to Professor Sean Davison in Cape Town. He gives his opinion on the Supreme Court of Appeal judgment, which was handed down last month. We're very current here in the Robin Strancham Ford case, and that concerns the the right to die. Uh, It was a Supreme Court of Appeal decision, as I said, very, very important for all of us as to how this impacts on us. Last up today, we're going to be talking about litigation funding, and uh, it's available in South Africa now. It's going to change, well, it is changing the legal landscape to a great extent in that uh, many people who would not normally have access to the courts can now have their cases legally funded. And, Lange, you'll know about Mr. Makati who sued Vodacom for oh, yes. the Please Call Me. That's the legal fees there, Lions, must be running into tens of millions. Mm-hmm. And uh, he succeeded eventually in the Constitutional Court, and he is trying to get a payout in the region of a few billion wow. or many billions. He would never have been able to get there if it wasn't for the funding of that case. So, uh, yeah, we're going to talk to Simon Cooper and Gary Swaden to explain the entire concept. Our email address, if you want to talk to us and uh, give us your feedback, it's law, L-A-W, at cliffcentral.com. Our Facebook page lines, um, the laws of life. <laughs> has been away for a while. The laws of life with Gary Hertzberg and our Twitter handle. It's at Hetzlaw, yeah. H-E-R-T-Z-L-A-W. 
Cool. Let's uh, start with Nastasha Hardeth. She's a director of Worksman's in Johannesburg, one of the big four, five, whatever, or six, whatever they are. She holds a BSc in chemistry and biochemistry from the RAU, as it was known then. She also has an LLB, which was awarded cum laude. We love having smarty pants in our studio, smart lawyers (laughs) from the University of Johannesburg. She's been with uh, Worksman's for a number of years, nine years or so. She's a director, which is something to be a director of that firm. Now, Nastasha, what, what is frightening is that 14 million of our people, of our South Africans, and we have 54 million here, so 14 million is a great percentage, are going hungry daily. When I saw that stat, I shivered and, and you know, you thought, you think, is it really happening? Well, it is. And unfortunately, in the process, we're dumping all the surplus and wasted food. Why? The question is, why don't we give it to them? Um, thanks for having me, Gary. I think it is completely unacceptable that so many millions of people are starving. If you have regard to the fact that um, 9 to 10 million tons of food is wasted annually, sorry, uh, and up to 71 billion rands is wasted if, if, you, if you quantify uh, the food waste, wastage. One of the big reasons why the food is dumped as opposed to it being donated is because of potential liability under Section 61 of the Consumer Protection Act. Now, just to unpack that for you, Section 61 of the Consumer Protection Act provides for no-fault liability. So anybody in the supply chain can be held strictly liable, i.e., that is, without any fault, if some consumer becomes ill or suffers any damage because of the product product, um, purchased. Now, anyone in the supply chain can be the manufacturer, can be the importer, can be the retailer. It can be anyone. Uh, that poor sod is then liable for something that he didn't really manufacture, but he sold, if, that, if that's the case, yeah. That, that's, that's correct, and it's a good piece of legislation. My gripe is not with Section 61, because mm. you want to know that if you go to the shop and you buy shampoo and all your hair falls out, that you can hold somebody liable, and you mm. don't have to go to the ends of the earth to try and prove where the fault um, with the product occurred, whether it was in the production or the storage or, um, or uh, because it wasn't kept at proper temperatures by the retailer or whatever the case may be. So Section 61 of the Consumer Protection Act in and of itself is a good piece of legislation. It does, however, have this unforeseen consequence in limiting donations. And my problem is um, with food donations in particular. Okay. Let's just uh, – you, you mentioned that it, it's across the supply chain. Does it mean that if I buy something from, say, a, a retailer, maybe a toaster for that matter – um, can they say, well, we didn't manufacture it, so we're not liable when the toaster burst into flames and burnt my hand? Can I get all of them? Can I sue the, the, the manufacturer, the distributor, the wholesaler, and are they jointly and severally liable? How does it work? That's, you've hit the nail on the head. They will all be liable um, because it's no-fault liability. And then mm. somewhere in between the court process and discovery uh, of documents, you will figure out who is actually to blame. But you as a consumer need not worry about that. You can just go ahead and sue everybody in the supply chain. Okay. Now, I've done a number of shows over the years. One of them was uh, one of our major retailers. I know that they donate food, a lot of food, 
to an orphanage in El Dorado Park that I went to visit once. Um, is there is there some kind of liability that they could pick up there, and why do they continue doing it? I've got so many questions, but there you go, the first one, if I can throw that at you. So if um, anybody, such as a retailer, donates food and there is no quid pro quo, then they will not be held liable under Section 61 of the Consumer Protection Act. They will only be held liable if they receive something in return. Now, many of the retailers, manufacturers, producers who do donate food make use of Section 18A, capital A, of the Income Tax Act. And that section provides that if you donate money or goods, you can um, receive a tax deduction of up to 10% of your annual turnover. And in addition, that donation is um, exempt from donations tax. And that is your quid pro quo. And that then brings the retailers and consumers within the ambit of Section 61 of the Consumer Protection Act. Okay, so when Benji, our researcher, said, if I give the beggar an apple, I, there's, there's no liability there because there's no, he's not giving me anything back. There's no quid pro quo. Unless I claim that back in my tax return and say apple donation. So what you're really saying is because the major retailers are getting this tax rebate, they then fall under Section 61 which means that they can be sued if anyone buys the surplus food that's been whipped off the shelves and given to them. And that's the scare of all this. That's correct. You, I I know you're campaigning vigorously. You've been all over the place to try and get this Good Samaritan law in to say it's nonsense. Uh, This shouldn't shouldn't be like that. If, if, If our major retailers are generous enough to give our food, they shouldn't be liable if anything goes wrong because the people know that are acquiring it that it's after the sell-by or best whatever date, and that's something we'll talk to you about as well, those three dates. Yeah. yeah. So I, I am lobbying together with a few other people um, to have a Good Samaritan law enacted in South Africa, such, uh, similar to what we have in the United States, in Canada, um, in Panama, in fact. Um, and then also recently, um, much harder pieces of legislation was enacted um, in France, for instance. Um, all that I really want is a piece of legislation that's enacted that says that if I'm a donor who donates wholesome food in good faith, then I will be exempt from the no-fault liability or criminal liability under any piece of legislation in South Africa or alternatively – If I donate food that is deficient in some way or another, in other words, if, for instance, it has reached its best before date and I donate it to a NGO that has the expertise to test the food, to to confirm that it is still wholesome and safe for consumption – in those instances, I will also be um, uh, held um, uh, sorry be exempt from strict liability let 's talk if you don 't mind uh, you know this better than I do you 're a biochemist and a lawyer there 's a sell by date there 's a best before date and there 's a use by date. Take us through unpack each one for us and explain in law which one is more dangerous and how this whole thing works yeah so your sell by date is the date on which um, by, by which the supermarket or the retailer should sell the food. After that date, there is still a reasonable period um, for storage at home and consumption. 
So that's really just to say, hey, retailer, in order to make sure that the quality of food you sell is good, you have to sell it by this date. Sorry, if they sell it after that date, then they run the risk of being sued if anything or whatever, I guess. Um, no, they can't. Oh. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah, it's complex. But, yeah. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. You go <laughs> ahead. Let yeah. me explain yeah, to you yeah, the yeah. three types of, yeah. of, of expiry dates first. Yeah. And the second expiry date is your best before date. And that relates to quality. So not um, safety or any health issues. And that is merely um, the producer or manufacturer that says, consumer, please eat this food before this particular date so that you get the maximum quality out of it. Mm -hmm. That means that if I'm going to buy a packet of chips, they're still going to be crispy and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Okay, that generally pertains to shelf-stable food. For instance, your pastas, your rice, your tinned food. Where does Millie Meal fit into this? I believe that's also shelf-stable, but there can be contamination. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in a second. Then your third type of, of um, expiry date is your use-by date. And by that date, you should ideally consume the, have consumed the food because that's estimated to be the date on which it is still safe. After that date, you run the risk of uh, contamination. That being said, yeah. in Norway, in the Norway Tinned Food Museum, they have tinned sardines that's over 100 years old that is still safe for consumption. Now, I guarantee you, if you had to crack open that tin of sardines, they're not going to be the tastiest tin of sardines that you've ever had. In fact, you might want to spit them out immediately after having tasted them, but they're still safe for consumption. Now, all three of these dates, in terms of the regulations, um, provides for marketability and quality and not so much with um, health and safety. And that is recognized by the Ombudsman um, for Consumer Goods and Services. Uh, in fact, he points out that none of those dates, as contained in the regulations, speaks to health whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but it is generally accepted that anything after the use-by date, you do so at your own the risk. The major re- retailers want to give away which of these? Foods between the sell-by date and best-before date. What about goods after the best before? That's not an issue. It's really goods. Just it's the first category, really. But yeah. So so, so the food's still good. The still. food's still good after yeah. the best before date, but because of this um, liability issue, they don't donate anything after the best before date. Mm. Lange, you picking this up? You certainly, uh, because yeah. I think what is also very important is to to, uh, to distinguish between perishable and non-perishable food, so that people mm. can really understand this because it happens all the time. Yeah. yeah. So so on that point, most you'll if you if you take the time and you walk through a supermarket, you'll see that your shelf stable non perishable food usually contains a best before date. Mm. They won't contain a sell by date, best before by best before date and a use by date. They will only contain a sell by date and a best before date. Your perishable food, for instance your milk, your eggs, your meats mm. They will have um, a sell-by date and a use-by date. Yeah. So if a product has a best-before date, that's a quality guarantee. That's not a safety guarantee. And that means that the, that food will last, can potentially last much lo- after the best-before date. The tragedy is this good food is actually being dumped. It, it, the supermarkets take it off their shelves and they go and dump it somewhere. 
I be, someone who, who once worked for Woolworths, it may be antiquated now, but said that people sign for this, for the goods and, uh, it gets dumped and it doesn't go to, to charities that are in dire need of, of this. And that is why you are so intent on changing this law. The very reason they can't give it to charities is if one person gets ill for maybe an allied reason, um, they will get sued and could get sued for millions. 100%. It's, yeah. And, and the tragedy and something that just absolutely breaks my heart is there are communities living on landfill sites. And they don't mind um, eating the dumped food because that's all they can afford. Now, I am not saying for one second, let's give um, rotten food to the poor. If, if that's your opinion of what I'm saying, you need to have another listen to the podcast. Mm. What I am saying is let's donate the wholesome food that is in oversupply carefully and with due regard to the law to to the poor. How do we as the public help you? Can we rally behind you? What, what do you want us to do? Have you got a website that everyone can rush to and sign up for? No, not yet. No, not yet. Yeah. But, um, Why is the government so darn slow on this? I mean, it's, it's, it's our people that are starving and the stats are there. This is not made up. There's yeah. millions of people that are, don't have a healthy meal that, at night that go to bed hungry. So yeah. it, it, to, it, it boggles my mind that we don't, that we don't have this piece of legislation in place because everybody will win. Um, the private sector will win because they won't have to pay, pay um, the landfill fees, the incineration fees, all of the all of the costs that goes with mm. having to dump the food. They will be able to maximize um, their donations, and they will just do general good for humanity. Us as citizens will win because a hungry child can't be expected to concentrate in class. And in fact, UNICEF has startling figures about what malnutrition um, causes in the economy. So somebody that is malnourished and stunted will, for instance, earn 22% less over their lifetime. I mean, the government shouldn't have any problem changing the laws. After all, we have the laws in America, the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Food Donation Act. They could follow the Internal Revenue Code that gives tax benefits on that one as well. The U.S. Federal Food Donation Act is there as well. So it's not like, you know, we've got to reinvent the wheel here. It's, it's been done all over the world. Just use your sense and get on with this and you know, let our people eat the food that's been thrown out. Yeah. So, yeah. so for every 5% of food that we manage to salvage, we will be able to feed out of a middle-income bread basket 195,000 people. Jeepers. So yeah. – <laughs> And that goes up. With, so, with every five percent that we are manage, that we manage to save, we can feed an extra one hundred ninety-five thousand people. That is startling, and there's no reason why anybody should be starving in South Africa if we waste that much food. Yeah. What about the food in restaurants? Um, I suppose that's a bit tricky, but people don't finish their their whatever. Could that also be sent to to? So, so that that is a little bit 
more difficult yeah. to approach because that that's food that's been already been, been cooked yeah. and been eaten. So yeah. you don't know if there's been any cross contamination. Absolutely. So yeah. so that is not really the focus of. Yeah, but of a this sealed pack of, of meat that's passed its its use by date or whatever. Please give it to me. I'll take it with pleasure if if I know of someone that's hungry and. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and um, the FDA in America has. Um, guidelines on how food can, for instance, be reconstituted by NGOs. So that's why the second leg of the le- legislation is so important, where where you donate defective, and I put that in inverted commas, goods um, to a NGO with the necessary expertise to reconstitute the food. Mm-hmm. Then you you also exempt from liability. For instance, botulism can um, be cooked to death, quite frank, quite literally. Yeah. Um, so that is how you can reconstitute the food uh, for for distribution. Okay, that's uh, we've been talking to Nastasha Hardiff. She's a director of Worksman's. Well done, and keep going and lobby like hell. And if we can help you, that's Thank what you. we're here to do. We want to get that message out there. People are hungry, and they must get this food as quickly as possible. Thank you so much. Many Gary. thanks to uh, you for coming in. I appreciate it. Yeah, talk to you again. Thanks. Bye. Law. Like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com. Our show is The Laws of Life, and with me is Lionel Makoko Tlela. Gary. I, I really enjoyed that last one, Lionel. It was on, brilliant. Yeah. It was. I'm, I'm sorry that people are not getting the food they deserve, but maybe the government will just take heed and do something. To be honest with you, Gary, it's just because there's no uh, political willingness in the, in the whole subject matter. Because the moment people are becoming no longer reliant on the government, government feels useful, uh, useless. So as such, they'll try to really try and bring all these laws just so that people become dependent on them. Uh, that's a good point you yeah. make there, Lines. Um, yeah, we can talk about that another time. Yeah. Today we have another segment and uh, on the line we have a man from Cape Town. Most of you have heard of Professor Sean Davison. He's the New Zealander who lives uh, in, now in Cape Town and he's been striving for years to get the law amended to allow people to die with dignity. Oh. So we have him on the line, and I tell you why. There's been a latest uh, court, supreme uh, court of appeal decision uh, that was handed down in the Robin Strandsham Ford case, which 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 is very important to all of us, and that's the right to die with dignity. But the Supreme Court has changed things. Uh, Professor Davison's not too happy about that. So let's bring him on the line. Welcome to you, Sean Davison. Sean? Good afternoon, Gary. Hi. Pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure to talk to you as well. We have spoken before. I'm a great advocate of uh, the fact that people should die with dignity. We've done this many times in your absence as well. I don't know if you know, I've been pushing for the right for us to, to die uh, in the way that, that we really want to and not to suffer a life of hell. Very briefly, Sean, and uh, if you if you wouldn't mind just spending a minute or so, for people who may not have heard of you, please tell us who you are and how you made headlines worldwide. Well, first of all, I'm very much a South African now. I've been here for over 20 years. Uh, but my mother, she continued to live in New Zealand, and she eventually got elderly and developed primary cancer, and that later became secondary cancer. When she was terminally ill, I went to New Zealand to be with her for her death. I thought this was going to be 
time to celebrate her life. It wasn't going to be tragic because she'd lived a full life. However, as circumstances turned out, my mother, a medical doctor, chose to go on a hunger strike to end her life. She knew as a doctor the dreadful consequences of cancer and thought by going on a hunger strike, she'd be able to die quickly with control of it. But tragically, the hunger strike went terribly wrong. It went on for five weeks and she ended up decomposing in her own bed. Mm. And after five weeks, begging me to help her to die, which is what I did. Mm. Unfortunately, the story... The consequences yeah. were that... Yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah, yeah, please tell us the consequences. Uh, the consequences yeah. were that uh, um, I, I did keep a, a diary, as I do in such you know, stressful times. My sister encouraged me to publish this diary because she had been a social worker and knew many people had been in similar situations. And it was a consequence of publishing a book about it that led to my arrest and charged with attempted murder. And after um, a complicated high court trial in New Zealand, I was found guilty of assisted suicide and sentenced to five months house arrest in New Zealand. Mm. It's all very tragic, but in the process... You are going about trying to change the laws in South Africa so that we can die with dignity. Am I right about that in simple terms? Yes, yes. A a, a very simple request to to give an individual the option of an assisted death should they want it. Hopefully, perhaps nobody wants it, but to have that option. And from studies around the world, when that option is available, there's a, a marked decrease in the number of elderly suicides. If they know they have the option available, they hang on and hang on and end up living, uh, dying a natural death. And so the bottom line is that this law change will actually save lives, save terrible suicides. Professor Sean Davison, let me uh, outline very briefly to our listeners, and I know you you knew the man very well and the case very well. There was a man called... A Strangham Ford, a double-barreled name, and he was an advocate of the High Court of South Africa. He was terribly ill. I think he developed cancer, and uh, he was kind of, yeah, he was dying slowly or quickly. I'm not quite sure. You can tell us. So he brought an urgent application to the High Court in Pretoria, asking the court to declare that a medical practitioner end his life or enable himself to end his life by the administration of some lethal agent and the court in that case in Pretoria and it's the year before last made an order that he was mentally competent when he applied to court and that he should be entitled freely and voluntarily without undue influence to authorize uh, his, his act of suicide and that he'd be entitled to get a medical doctor to help him do it and the medical doctor would, could not be charged criminally. Am I right about that? Yes. And uh, the application, the application to the High Court in Pretoria succeeded. Unfortunately, the man died on the day the judgment was granted. So what happened yes, was, but, yeah, go ahead. Go. Go. Well, that is really a technicality that the, the judge made his decision based on the circumstances, whether the the patient, Robin Stanton Ford, died an hour before or an hour after shouldn't really be relevant in terms of our humanity, maybe in terms of the law it might be. Yeah. I, I, yeah so the, 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 the fact is that there was a judgment in the favor of somebody who wanted to die uh, being able to ask a doctor to help them do so or to take their own life, and 
and that judgment stood except that this a wonderful st- judgment. Yeah. A wonderful judgment for, for you and for people that feel the way you do and I do, that you shouldn't suffer and you shouldn't die in, in absolute agony. But the fact is that that case was taken on appeal to the Supreme Court of Appeal very recently, and that's why we have you on the phone today. That judgment was handed down in December 2016, and maybe you can take us through what happened, what the court said from the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein. Yes. Keep in mind, I'm not a lawyer, um, and the judgment has still been analyzed by our lawyers. I'm speaking essentially as a, a layperson with a, with a great interest in this. The judgment in Bloemfontein was essentially a technical judgment. It didn't really touch on the humanity issues of it. It said that we should be exploring this in more detail and have a better case before the High Court that the High Court judgment in the Robin Stratton Ford case was was rushed and didn't give interested parties a chance to respond. Um, these were all technical reasons, and it, it was encouraging that the Supreme Court of Appeal did encourage more thoughtful discussion and perhaps going back to court and, and didn't close the issue completely, but it was a technical judgment. And that was sad for, for me and, and for the public who seek this law change, because we were looking at the bottom line. The bottom line was Robin Stratton Ford, a man terminally ill, suffering terribly at the end of his life, simply wanting to choose a dignified death at his time of choosing. Mm-hmm. To the layperson, that's a very simple request. And we can't understand anybody, including a court, turning down such a request. Of course, when it becomes a legal argument and a medical argument and a political argument, it gets very, very messy, as it did. The, basically, the Supreme Court of Appeal found that it was wrong for the High Court in Pretoria to issue an order allowing a terminally ill cancer patient to commit suicide with the doctor's help. And that's put paid to that. Yes, essentially, said there should be more discussion in the High Court. Uh, the judge made his decision too hurriedly, which is quite understandable because Robin Stratton Ford was terminally ill. Yes. I mean, how could a judge not have made such a quick decision? Mm. This doesn't. The, the uh, Supreme Court of Appeal also recommended. Yes, uh, the Supreme Court of Appeal also recommended that Parliament should decide these matters, and. That was also very disappointing when you keep in mind that Nelson Mandela tabled the South African Law Commission report in 1999 recommending this discussion and this type of law change, and Parliament hasn't touched that issue since then. So recommending Parliament consider it now is um, you know, it's kind of beyond hope. Yeah, we urge our listeners to have a look at Sean Davison's website. Well, it's not his, it's with a number of people. It's called DignitySA.org, DignitySA.org, on which, Sean, and we're very grateful to you, you have uh, made available to us a living will that we can copy and use and an advanced directive planning guide and the directive form. So very, in a, just in a minute or two, just explain to us what those documents are and how it can help us. Yeah, sure. A living will doesn't state that you can have an assisted death, of course. That's illegal. It's really preparing you and your family for death and 
the options available and stating clearly that you may want a life support system switched off or you may not want to receive medication under certain circumstances. One of the valuable things to come from a living will is it gets a family talking about a, a family member's death. It's a subject they're very reluctant to talk about as a Western society. Mm. And by talking about it with your children or grandparents with grandchildren, it makes them better prepared when the death comes. And indeed, by talking about it, it makes it better for you when you get to that point where you're near death. Death is nothing to shy away from. We're all going to get there. And talking about it is very, very important. And indeed, this court case has got people talking, which is a valuable outcome from it. Yeah. Before I let you go, Prof, is there anything you'd like to convey to our listeners? Well, I've, my feeling is that the current law does not reflect the mood of the country. I'm quite certain of that. Opinion polls have indicated that. And I'm just extremely disappointed that the politicians don't engage in this debate, let alone listen to the arguments. I just find it very, very sad. It was the government, the ANC, who challenged the High Court ruling in the Supreme Court of Appeal. Yet the government is not listening to the arguments. That They're too fearful of putting their heads above the parapet. This is a case in countries all over the world. It's very, very sad. And I wish we could find some way of motivating and inspiring our politicians to become involved in this debate. Yeah. Many thanks to you, Prof. And uh, please, uh, to our listeners, have a look at the website. And there's a wealth of information there generally about what your rights are. Many thanks to you and uh, hope to speak to you again. Cheers. My pleasure. Pleasure Good. to talk to you. Again. We, we're going to be uh, bringing into the studio lines uh, Simon Cooper and Gary Sweden, and they're going to be talking to us about litigation funding. We just got to nab them. They're standing outside our studio. We'll be right back. I'm Gary Hertzberg with Lionel McCorkatlela. Yes, indeed. And we're talking about litigation funding. Yep, absolutely. Opposite us today, we have Simon Cooper and Gary Sweden, and they're going to be talking. They're from a company called Taurus Capital. And they're going to be talking to us about litigation funding. Now, is this a new or old concept? What it really means, very basically, before we get there, is that in the old day or prior to this, uh, you couldn't take on the big guys because you didn't have the money and the wherewithal to fight them. But now these people are going to lend you money to go and sue the bastards. So uh, <laughs> let's talk quickly to Simon firstly. Simon, how long has litigation funding been around for? Thanks, Gary. Uh, litigation funding has been around actually since ancient times. Um, if you go back to ancient Greece, uh, that was when the first recorded litigation funding transactions took place. And uh, from there, the abuse that used to happen at that stage was claims were sold to very influential and powerful people. So when they would arrive uh, at the judge in, in those matters, Matters, just based on who they were and their status, they, it was found the abuse was they would find favorably in their favor, regardless of what the merits of the case were. From there in ancient Rome, that was curtailed. Once medieval times came through and the rise of Christianity uh, was, now, was now part of public policy, the sin of usury uh, was frowned upon. So no lending money was taking place at all and therefore no investment in, in litigation. And also litigation generally in those times were frowned upon because it was all about forgiveness as opposed to fighting. Then uh, eventually a Bentham, a philosopher, started uh, 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 writing papers about litigation funding and how it would help impecunious litigants and litigants in general for the high costs of litigation. And that translated in England to become public 
public policy there. And then in 2004, the SCA declared that it was not against public policy for litigation to be funded by a third party. Okay, so we've all been seeing in the press, there's a man called Mr. Ma- Kenneth Makati, M-A-K-A-T-E. He sued Vodacom, saying that he was the inventor of Please Call Me. Yes. And Vodacom denied that. They went to the high court. He lost. They went to, I think, the Supreme Court of Appeal. He lost. And then they went to the Constitutional Court, and he won. Yes. The fact is that he's now entitled to a slice of the billions of rands, and this is really big money, that Vodacom has made on Please Call Me. Yes. Now, uh, he could never have got there without someone behind him. That's good. So he got a litigation funder, and they then... How does it work? So he entered into, from what we understand, from uh, what what we've seen in the press, is he entered into a litigation funding agreement at the beginning, and then that that went on and the process took place. But it's very hard as a litigation funder when you go and you lose in the court to Aqua, and then you have to go on appeal. It's also very hard when you lose there and you have to go to the constitutional court. For what we understand, his lawyers went on contingency at some stage um, of the process, and eventually he was successful in the constitutional court in a groundbreaking judgment. And uh, now I think the order says that that he must go negotiate with Vodacom uh, what a fair and reasonable recompense would be for coming up with the idea of please call me. I saw somewhere in, in one newspaper or other that he's going to get about 15% of the, of the revenue generated by Vodacom. Um, I don't know. They talk about $10 billion or something crazy. Yeah, astronomical numbers, but astronomical. Uh, it's a very successful product for, for the cell phone industry as a whole. Now, the litigation funder had the balls to take this all the way to the Constitutional Court because they lost along the way. The legal fees are, I mean, we're talking tens of millions here. Am I right about I'd that? I assume so, yes. The litigation funders are going to get a big slice of this. They, they will walk out with a billion or whatever. <laughs> You only need one case like that in your lifetime, and you. Well, funnily yeah. enough, when you when you look, talk about litigation funding, if you yeah. if as a funder, if you talk about astronomical numbers, because you're going to fund so much litigation over such a long period of time, uh, you might be talking millions. But in the grand scheme of things, a commercial case can cost between five and fifteen million rand conservatively to fund, and can take anywhere from from six months to five years. So uh, it's good to have a fund a fund behind you, and uh, if they do come away with something, it's it's not a sit back and retire. It's going to a funded ploughed into more cases. You mentioned that uh, this has been litigation funding has been part of our law since 2004 although it hasn't really been prominent. Um, it's only now recent, am I right? Yeah, well that, I, we, that I've got to hear about this. I yeah. think uh, coming from the profession you'll agree that lawyers are prisoners of their own prototype and because maintenance and champity uh, being the, the formal names for litigation funding was against public policy for so long it's not as if there was a big billboard on the street saying it's now lawful, everybody can enter into litigation funding agreements and so it's to educate the market again that this is a lawful a very sensible commercial transaction for litigants to hedge off the costs and risk of litigation in order for them to proceed to litigate these claims because if you if you look at the basics of the transaction, if you never had the funding these litigants either wouldn't proceed with the case at all, mm-hmm. alternatively they'd have to settle for an amount much lower um, than what the claim value would be worth and that's not because the litigants on the other side are bullies. That's just because the cost of entering the game of litigation at every stage of it is so expensive and it escalates. The closer you get to court, the more expensive it gets. And uh, if you do come up against a litigant who has funds, who has arms and a war chest against an impecunious litigant or even a, a litigant with a few million rand, they can sweat you out and the next thing you know, you'll have to abandon your claim. Absolutely. The voice you're listening to is Simon Cooper, your daddy. 
is a big player in the legal field. He's the well-known and very respected senior counsel in Johannesburg. Yes, yeah, yeah. very big shadow. Very yeah. big shadow I've been walking in. Uh, it's Michael Cooper, isn't it? Yes, correct. And uh, he's, yeah, well, well known. You are an attorney as well. Yes, yes. Well, I'm now a, a rehabilitated attorney. I'm now <laughs> full-time into litigation funding, but obviously my, uh, my experience as an attorney has helped me greatly in this and uh, certainly shown me that there's a need because I did, uh, in my eight years of being an attorney, I did a lot of bank work. And so when you're litigating on behalf of a bank, it's, it's very easy because you've got a blank check to go and get a result. And uh, that's an easy part of doing the job. But if you're a attorney and you're acting on behalf of a small business or an or individual, it's very difficult to take the case as far as it needs to go and to give it a war chest and to brief the best senior counsel uh, because of the cost of, of litigating. Okay, let's give uh, your partner, Gary, a, 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 a small hearing. Gary, if, what happens if you take on a case, you fund the case, the guy gives you a set of facts up front, and then when it gets to court, he talks a whole lot of crap, and uh, uh, it, the whole case gets blown out. He misled you from the beginning. So I think, Gary, yeah. fundamentally, uh, any case, you have to have an honest client at the end of the day, and, and there's obviously protections in the business whereby – if you're not on the same page as your client, uh, it's not going to get to the end. So mm -hmm. certainly there are some protections whereby funders, it all comes down to the, the facts have to stack up and they have to be true and real. And if they're not, well, we're, uh, ultimately the, the funder would part ways with such an individual. It just it can't work. Although funding, litigation funding is really a non-recourse. Absolutely. Kind of and thing. I think, Gary, yeah. you said that at the beginning, a, yeah. a funder lends money. It's a. It's probably the wrong term to to use. It's a. Uh, they put up the money on a non-recourse basis, exactly. So at the end of the day, if a funder funds a case uh, and it's unsuccessful at the end of the day, there would be non -re no recourse uh, back to the client at the end of the day. I mean, you fund uh, the litigation. Can You can fund the man in the street who may have a big claim against uh, some conglomerate or a bank or whatever it is. If you feel, and you've got to do a great analysis here, if you feel that the case is, is, has merit, you will take it on. Yeah, quite correct. So I think yeah. uh, as long as there's a c commercial matter at the end of the day and the case is meritorious, a mm. uh, funder will look very broadly at what they're prepared to fund. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're not going to do this out of the goodness of your heart. It's a business that funders <laughs> a, are, are running here, and it's a very expensive business. There's a also a, a good chance that you could lose the case. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, at the, the, the difficulty in this business is funders will often say a lot more no's than they will yes. Um, they're looking for very narrow scope uh, cases whereby the the prospects of success are exceptionally high. Um, a funder is typically not going to – it's not a gamble. A funder doesn't get in this business to say, okay, let's, let's have a go. Let's see where this is. It's, it's very calculated. You spoke earlier of, uh, you know, uh, analyzing the risks. We, you know, these funders have um, – Exceptionally smart individuals uh, in the legal risk committee and the commercial side that yeah. analyze the, the detail down to the nth degree and are going to take on cases whereby they, the, the prospects of success are exceptionally high. Simon Cooper, what about the, I'm an attorney and I want to know what the benefit, and we have a lot of a large listenership of lawyers. What's the benefit to us attorneys in this? So it's a very simple and powerful point. It gives you cases you ordinarily could not have proceeded with, and it gives you the cash flow that comes from being allowed to proceed with those cases. Well, can I stop you there? If I have a client who wants me, 
uh, you'll decide which lawyer you want. So, so somebody of your caliber obviously ticks. No, ticks it's very nice boxes. of you, but uh, <laughs> generally, I think that the funder will choose his attorney because you can't take the risk. Not, of not always, because often you'll come. Uh, let me answer your question in two parts. So, the first thing is, um, you can't have, for example, a, a specialist criminal attorney litigating a commercial arbitration. You've got to have mm. horses for courses. Mm. And generally, if you have a reputable firm, a Santon firm, a big firm, or alternatively a specialist boutique firm, um, you can you can be assured you're going to get the best result. Also, what's very important is counsel. Counsel, counsel are the ones standing up and arguing the case at the end of the day. Then the, the, the alternative to that is often people will come, they've lost in the court or quo, they've used their attorney, the family attorney, for many, many, many years, and now it's time for an appeal. An appeal can be as expensive, if not more expensive, if you are the appellant than the actual first uh, court of first instance. And so now you can't just say, well, this attorney isn't our first choice. There's so much invested in him mm-hmm. that what you would do is empower them and you'd put a team around that particular attorney. Or, for example, if it's just a silk working without a junior, you'd mm-hmm. put a junior counsel in. Right. So it's all about that war chest and about empowering the legal team to do the best job possible. Yeah, Lange, you want to ask anything? Oh, yes. Um, uh, like, um, it's quite mind-boggling. This is not <laughs> a pro bono work. So, <laughs> so if, I, if a man on the street has got a commercial idea and they go to a, a major retailer and they give them an idea and then there was no non-disclosure agreement that was actually signed and later on the idea actually, you are told the idea is not good enough, then tomorrow... They, well, use, I, they yeah. use your idea. Yeah. Can somebody like that come to you? And uh, yeah, Lana, absolutely. I mean, mm. we've we, we've actually historically come across some similar scenarios over the last couple of months. Um, that's exactly in the space of a litigation funder, um, whereby they can work together with that individual. Assess the merits up front, so it's quite nice to go to a funder first, whereby instead of incurring the costs of potentially some attorneys up front, the funder can give a better sense um, at the beginning in terms of the prospects of success and then advise that individual to say, okay, well, these are the correct attorneys to approach. Let's go to them together. Let's, uh, let's assess the prospects down the line and, and make some decisions up front. Likewise, if you go to a funder first, the funder may actually say to you, listen, unfortunately, this is this is not going to get anywhere. The prospects are low. And instead of wasting any money up front with an attorney, you you told uh, you told at the beginning. And you say, okay, well, I've cut my losses and unfortunately we've got to move on. Just just a disclaimer to that. When when that does happen, and it does happen, we always say to the client that we're not giving legal advice. We're simply giving our subjective view as to a merits of a case. Mm. So so going to an attorney, obviously, for a good prospects of success is important. But as a as a first place to go, just a general sense, absolutely. What happens if uh, during the matter the client wants to settle, or you want to settle, and the client doesn't, and whatever? Who, who's, who's, so which takes precedence? It's a, it's a great, it's a yeah. great question, Gary. Yeah. So you deal with that up front when everybody's sober and uh, nobody's uh, wants to wants to t- go too far into the process. You sign a litigation funding agreement and you'll put the terms and parameters for settlement. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you want to. It's always in how we work is it always be within the client's right to settle a matter. However, you do agree at what price because a client can go and and settle for whatever he wants if if a litigation funder was not involved. However, when a funder is involved, he gives away some of that right, and you'll put a minimum amount as to what that settlement would be. And uh, at the same time, a first offer of settlement is never a best offer of settlement. So even if that first offer of settlement is above the threshold that you've previously agreed with the client, you may both jointly agree to reject that offer and then have a counter offer made. Does the litigant, assuming you're financing a plaintiff, does he, is it disclosed that there's a funder? 
Or does it have to be disclosed? Excellent question. So the law currently says, no, you do not have to disclose it. And that follows the international trends all over the world where litigation funding is prominent. However, think of the value of it. If you go at the beginning of the case and say, dear other side, a litigation funder is involved, all of a sudden that tactic of trying to spend him and sweating him, that that becomes a futile exercise. And it sobers the other side up to say, well, let's come with an offer. Let's actually work to resolve this thing. At the same time, if a matter's proceeded very, very far down the line, you may not want to mention it because it may create a sideshow or a storm in in a teacup that will distract from the merits. So it's on a case-by-case basis. Litigation funding is going to change the landscape. Well, it does because people now know that they have – they have someone, a big daddy, that can finance them if they've got a meritorious case. Absolutely, and I think, uh, Gary, I mean, we, we're not unique here around the world. There are, uh, in the U.K. and Australia and the U.S., these are significant businesses that have been around for many years, and uh, we're simply following their lead. Lange, you want to ask something? Oh, yes. Um, what's the difference between um, medical malpractice, how they actually use the model to actually go for a case in your, uh, your model? So this is a distinction between an attorney going on in terms of the Contingency Fees Act and what we are doing, and it's a very important distinction. So because we are third-party, non-lawyer litigation financiers, essentially, we are not governed by the Contingency Fees Act because we do not administrate the matter in any way. We simply put up money on a non-recourse basis to empower those attorneys. However, with medical malpractice, if you're an attorney, you have to go. You have to follow the Contingency Fees Act, which says that uh, you can take 25% of a claim or double your fee, whichever is the lower in the event a case is successful. Less VAT. Less than that. Yeah. 25% less than that. Yeah. And so for, for high volume, for high volume medical malpractice work, it is a popular way, uh, for these attorneys to, to administrate these cases. But at the commercial level, unfortunately, because of the cost of legal fees is so high, some attorneys will say to themselves, well, I can work on the tariff at X rand per hour, but actually I'm charging double or triple it, uh, without going on, on risk. So therefore, the Contingency Fees Act doesn't really, isn't a solution, um, for litigants who need commercial litigants. Litigation. However, litigation funding is. A lot of lawyers have probably looked at you and said, Ahmed, this is nonsense. It's going to take you years to get to court. By that time, who knows what? Do you get that thrown at you as litigation funders? Yeah, absolutely. And we yeah. prefer, as, as a rule of thumb, we prefer arbitration because the time frames are, are a, little bit, a little bit less. Oh. But at the same time, you can't ignore our court system. You look at Oscar Pistorius's case, for example. It's the most followed court case in the last however many years. Mm. And uh, now I was just thinking on the way here, it's three years. Am I correct? It was 2013, Valentine's Day 2013. Yeah. And that case, ran like a tight ship and it's been a wonderful experience for all of us to watch it and to understand the legal system but uh, justice uh, as the phrase goes the wheel of justice turns slow but they grind fine and um, so it's all about having a litigation funder with a long investment horizon that's willing to partner you for the long term and that won't get antsy come uh, come an appeal stage or come a stage four years later for example You've got to go all the way on on these things. You, if it need, means you've got oh, to go to the at, Concord. Look at, yeah. look at Mr. McCarty. Yeah, yeah, if he ran out of steam, that was that. Was that yeah. yeah. We've been talking to Simon Cooper and Gary Swaden of Taurus Capital. It's been very interesting on litigation funding. Most lawyers don't know too much about this. It's a new concept. It's not new, but it's, it's new in practice, and it's going to make waves in – in our industry. Many thanks for coming in. We appreciate thanks, it. Thank Talk you. to you again. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks. Law. Like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life. With Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.